0: This audio file is a production of the University of Chicago Law School. Visit us on the web at www.law.uchicago.edu. Okay. Thank you for coming. Uh, this is Chicago's Best Ideas. I'm, for those of you who have not met me, I'm Todd Henderson. I teach here, I went to school here. So I sat there, and we didn't have these then, but listen to things like this. Uh, I can't say that this is one of Chicago's best ideas. I think we probably long ago ran out of those. (laughs) However, this has one thing that those ideas did not have, which is a market test. Uh, There's a book by the same name, and my co-author who used to run the entrepreneurship clinic went out into the market, and based on the ideas in this book, raised $150 million. That doesn't seem like a lot in a world where the federal government spends $5 trillion a year, but for a law professor, that's a pretty big deal. So we have been market tested, but we'll see if, see if it's a good idea or not as we go. Um, so uh, this book is about trust, and I want to start by saying trust matters. Uh, there's a quote up here from a Nobel Prize-winning economist Um, But this chart looks at GDP per capita and uh, a metric on the why is most people in your society can be trusted. And you can see there's a very strong and positive correlation between wealth and trust. Unfortunately, trust seems to be collapsing. This chart is polling data about whether or not people have trust in uh, institutions. This particular one is in the federal government and state governments uh, since 1960. And you can see the direction this has. This is a pretty bipartisan phenomenon. It really doesn't matter so much who's in the White House or who the people that are asked this question. There's similar data on this point for basically every institution in our society, media, academia, everywhere. The only one that's gone up since the 1960s is the military. In part, that's driven by the fact that the military was starting from a pretty low baseline in the 1960s. A solution to trust and creating a trust society might be government, and we'll talk a lot more about this. But uh, I saw this car parked in Hyde Park, and it was a, in the Walgreens parking lot, and it really points at an issue that Brian Kaplan raised in his good book, The Myth of the Rational Voter, His point in that book is that voters, when they're voting on policies, first of all, there's just too many things the government is doing to vote based on particular policies. Uh, Something that will become important later in the talk, no one ever voted for mayor based on the mayor's view on taxis. The other point he makes in the book is that any individual's chance of influence in the election is zero. The one thing you do get from voting, though, is the feeling and the group affiliation from voting. You, you capture 100% of that. Uh, and as someone who lives in a mixed household voting-wise, I can tell you that phenomenon is real and can drive you to vote in ways that you otherwise wouldn't vote in. I'll just leave it at that. The thing that struck me about this was, and this person, uh, she was in favor of Clinton Cain, uh, and now she's feeling the burn, but, the juxtaposition of the Cubs bumper sticker and the political bumper stickers, <laughs> politics as sport, as tribe. Um, I know, growing up in Pittsburgh, the only thing I hated uh, more than Nazis were Cleveland fans. Uh, I just like I was born to hate them. And I think today in our society, a lot of people—that's uh, the case with you know Republicans and Democrats—you um, feel a kind of tribal affiliation, and that really inhibits us from making good. Policy, I think uh, political trust is probably here to stay at a very low level. And all the while, uh, government grows and grows and grows. Uh, Again, this is a bipartisan phenomenon. Uh, I have voted for Republican presidents who promised that they would cut the deficit or spending, and it doesn't work. So... Government just keeps getting bigger, and we'll see in a minute whether I think that's a good thing or a bad thing after having written this uh, book. I want to offer a completely different paradigm for thinking about trust. And I want to start with riding with strangers. So if your mom was like my mom, uh, that's not actually my mom, but uh, she has a much better scolding face than my mom does, so I used her. If your mom was like my mom, she told you, don't ride with strangers. And if you followed that advice, it's good advice. It probably kept you out of a lot of mischief. But there's a problem with that advice. It limits your choices. It limits your ability to cooperate with other people. For instance, you find yourself in Manhattan on a business trip. And you come out at Penn Station, and you can't ride with a stranger. How are you going to get to your meeting down in Wall Street? Well, the government offered a solution. And that solution was intended to allow you to ride with strangers. What what riding with strangers does is, you know, if you're looking for a ride to the airport, you could rely on your family. You could definitely trust your family. That's very low cost, but not a lot of value because you might not have family around when you need a ride. You might not have family in New York. You could expand to friends and have lots of friends all over, but making friendships is making friendships and sustaining friendships is costly. So you could invest in little pods of friends in all the places you go for trips and hope they'll be around to give you rides. That's possible. The maximum number of friends any of us probably has that would give us rides to the airport are probably in the order of less than 100. So that really limits your options. Riding with strangers, there's an infinite number of strangers, five billion strangers in the world to me, but it's really costly to ride with them because, well, see the prior slide. What regulation is trying to do is push the stranger category into low cost. Keep it high value, keep it low cost. And of course, you know what the government solution to that is, it's this. This is the government solution since the 1920s for riding with strangers. A taxi cab, yellow color, label on the top, posted rates, tamper-proof meter, regulated drivers, a promise from government, you can ride with this stranger, and you will not come to grief. And this is a profound and profoundly important invention. It offers people the chance to cooperate who would not otherwise cooperate. It's allowing a voluntary transaction to happen that wouldn't otherwise happen. And that makes everybody better off. It makes the rider better off. It makes the driver better off. It makes people that you can get to whether it's to go home for a holiday, go and shop somewhere, everybody uh, is better off as a result of this. There is a virtuous circle of trust. If you trust other people, you can cooperate with them. Getting a ride, doing work together, whatever it is. And if you can cooperate, that allows you to specialize. Specialization Increases productivity. And productivity is what makes wealth. Adam Smith didn't invent this, but he described it in The Wealth of Nations when he said that an individual could increase their per capita productivity 3,000 times in making pins. That was the example he used. By cooperating with other workers in in a kind of assembly line. So... A worker could make one pin a day working by him or herself. They could make 3,000 pins per day per capita if they worked in a group and cooperated with each other. That made everybody more wealthy. And of course, when you have wealth, you want to do more stuff. You want to engage in more voluntary transactions. And of course, the virtuous cycle just begins all over again. I started, and and it's this circle, this cycle of trust that, that brought us from this guy to Tokyo. The capacity to unbelievably increase the well-being of human society is all through human cooperation. The claim I make in this book and in this uh, talk is that there is actually a hidden market here, uh, what I call the market for trust, in which individuals demand trust because we want to cooperate and that Institutions or entities provide us or supply us with that trust. And they're constantly coming up with new ways to deliver trust to us. This market has some interesting features that are different than other markets. First, there's no self supply of trust. I could grow my own vegetables, I could knit my own clothes but I can build my own house. There's stuff I can supply myself. I can't supply, my, I can't supply trust myself with respect to cooperating with other people. In fact, the more trusting I am in the abstract and the rule of nature, the more likely I probably am to be taken advantage of. As we'll see, this market, and this, this isn't really different than other markets, it is very dependent on technological change. In itself, is a technological change. I call the trust innovations that we'll talk about social technologies, but it's very dependent on technological change from the outside. For instance, the invention of agriculture vastly increased the need for trust. The invention of refrigeration in the 1920s in the United States vastly increased the need for trust and the demand for trust. And not surprisingly, institutions arose to satisfy that demand. We'll talk about those uh, later. It's a kind of network good. It expands. The, the more people who can be trusted, the more valuable it is. Crucially, and we'll come back to this um, sort of towards the end, government is a very unusual party here because, unlike in other markets, government is both a producer of trust and a regulator of other trust-producing entities. I'll say more about that later. Obviously, the different providers of trust have different advantages and disadvantages. Government, for instance, can create trust pretty easily. If you cheat someone, we will put you to death. That's a very powerful trust-creating device. Now I know that if I cheat someone, I'm going to be killed by the government. On the other hand, it's got some problems with it. Uh, If it makes mistakes and kills people, who actually were trustworthy, the social costs of that are very high. Another thing is government can only act in a lot of limited scope. The US government has uh, only really the authority to to institute trust over me if I'm within its jurisdiction. If I'm in Japan, it's a lot harder for the US government to act on me, or Somalia. I mean, I guess they could send a drone. We do that now, but. it's limited by its jurisdictional reach. Non-governmental agencies who are providing trust, and I'll talk about what those are, they're not subject to the typical limiting factors of government. They can tailor trust. Um, I'm losing one person already, but it's, it's okay. I believe in voting with your feet, so that's a, that's, that's a good Chicago uh, value. Okay, I am going to go through quickly what I call a genealogy of this, what I've been describing. And I'm gonna use as my example here the four periods of human civilization, starting with hunter-gatherers, agricultural, industrial, and information. And I've laid out what the various trust innovations were in these various periods, which all had kind of profound impacts on human society. Obviously, the first one is where we were for millions of years in a cave with people who were biologically related to us. And we trusted them, and good thing it was like in our DNA. You trust your parents because they're biologically related to you. And human civilization for millions of years did not expand beyond groups of about 50 or 100 people. Those tribes only trusted each other because they were biologically related to the other members. And this really limited their ability to specialize and cooperate. You couldn't have a large civilization where everybody was within one or two degrees of consanguinity. One thing that was developed that helped as human societies expanded was language. Language obviously was a way to communicate which allowed people to cooperate. But it also is the most powerful in-group, out-group signal that we have as human civilizations. What does this mean? Well, if you're Chinese, you know that means trust, I think. That's what Google Translate said. It could mean something horrible. And if you're a Chinese speaker and you see that and it's an insult, I apologize. But I think that means trust. But if you're a Chinese speaker and someone comes to you and speaks in Chinese, you immediately know that that person is part of your tribe. And if they don't, if they have a weird accent, you know this is a foreigner and I'm less likely to trust them. This seems strange today for us, but there's good studies looking at language within corporate hierarchies, and the strong result is people who speak the same language trust each other more than people who speak different languages. And this is just a remnant of our tribalism, where we came from, where we would only trust people who were uh, biologically related to us. When the agricultural age dawns and people start realizing that they can plant seeds and grow their own food as opposed to having to hunt and gather for their food, this was a huge advance, but it created a big problem. Can I plant seeds and Know that I can wait six months to be able to harvest them or will someone come else come in and steal what I've planted and To solve this problem of trust law develops and the first law is all about Ensuring that you could trust that your investments in agriculture could be reaped by you Hammurabi promulgates a code here Uh, if you commit robbery you are put to death And what this was intended to do was increase the trust that you could cooperate with other people and not be taken advantage of. Of course, as I mentioned, the downside of this is the government killing people, it can make mistakes. Or worse, it can do it for its own purposes. Or people could capture the government. I really want that person's land. I influence the king to kill that person in return for some uh, favor. This innovation, uh, writing, you can, this is, these uh, symbols on this, this is the first forms of writing, these are plots of land, that's a piece of wheat, and these are numbers, something about how much wheat was on this land. Writing was designed to enable trust. You could write it down, and therefore I knew that it was, uh, information was available about what was mine. And backed up by law, the government will put you to death. This has an unbelievable effect on the size of human communities. For millions of years, there are 50 or 100 people. Within a few hundred years, there are civilizations of humans that are a million people in Mesopotamia. And humans, by the way, are the only species that does anything like this. I was talking about this book with a colleague's uh, significant other at a bar, and she said, yeah, What's amazing is, as a primate, you are, your back is currently turned to a primate that's behind you that you don't know who that is. So humans are the only only species on earth that does that. Honeybees and termites, they're all biologically related. They're the same mother. There's a queen. They're programmed in their DNA. Humans are the only people who trust strangers, and that's something that we shouldn't take for granted. God. Religion. Obviously, it has. Uh, there are people who think this has some uh, spiritual component, and I'm not here to argue that point or come on one side or the other, but as a trust delivery tool, it's incredibly powerful. First, knowing what religion are you are allows you to trust and form an in-group, out-group. Catholics might be more likely to trust Catholics, Protestants, Protestants, Jews, Jews. You think again, this sounds old-fashioned. Come on. Bernie Madoff, who promulgated the largest Ponzi scheme in US history, $65.8 billion that he stole from his 2,400 investors, all of whom were Jews. And the reason he did that is because he was taking advantage of this fact, that people within a particular subgroup, religious or otherwise, more likely to trust people who are within that subgroup. You can be trusted. You know that you're going to hell cast your mind back to medieval Europe. You're going to hell if you cheat me and you act badly. Therefore, I know that you believe that because we're the same religion and therefore you can be trusted. And of course, perhaps most powerfully, the fact that the king is a servant or queen, a instrument of God, makes it very likely you'll trust the government to be able to inculcate trust among the people. This works pretty well, law, language, religion, but as civilization expands, it comes up short. This picture is, uh, anybody know where this is? Close, this is Bergen, it's a town in Norway, and these is the buildings of the Hanseatic League. The Hanseatic League, they were German merchants from Lubeck. They were in the business of shipping fish from Norway, the Lofoten Islands, to the continent, especially after the Pope declared that you weren't allowed to eat meat on Fridays. How can you move fish from the Arctic Circle in Norway down to continental Europe? Well, you need a network of trading posts to be able to do that. It's complicated international shipments. How could these German merchants trust these Norwegian fishermen who are thousands of miles away? They can't. There's no law. There's no international law yet. So the Hanseatic League realizes law is not sufficient. They can't sue if the Norwegian fishermen cheat them. The German princes are not going to invade Norway over this. So what do they do? They create a basically gigantic company interwoven among these various guilds, placing their people in strategic posts along the way. And this this guild, the Hanseatic League, uh, was the dominant trading uh, tool for five centuries in, in Europe. And it was completely outside the bounds of law. It enabled transnational shipping in unimaginable ways. It allowed Norwegians to cooperate with Germans that made and everybody else in continental Europe that made everybody better off. Another version of this is the first corporations, This is the coat of arms of a company called uh, Merchants of the Staple. They got their royal charter in 1319. Who were they? Well, as the picture suggests, they were wool merchants. They were British wool merchants who were in towns like Ghent and Bruges in Belgium. What is today Belgium? And why would they create a corporation? Well... You can imagine, at the time, there were basically just sole proprietors, individual wool merchants, who were all British. They've got wool that they're bringing from Scotland, Ireland, and England, and they want to sell it to the weavers, the people, the artisans in the Low Countries. So here they are. They set up shop in in Belgium, and the people, the, the natives, the artisans, are buying stuff from them. But at the time, there wasn't really a good way to distinguish between wool merchants. People didn't have brands or signs, Uh, it was really easy to cheat people. You could rig your weighing system or scales or cheat uh, chintz on the quality. And the British merchants realized that one merchant could cheat uh, a buyer and then all buyers would be leery about dealing with any English merchant. They were a group, after all. And so, what we would normally think who would police cheating by these British wool merchants is the king. But the king is across the channel, and at the time, it would take months for even news of the cheating to get back to the king, and by then, this cheating wool merchant would be off somewhere, and they wouldn't even be able to find him. So recognizing that, these merchants cooperated with each other to form a company called the Merchants of the Staple, which was basically government. They created a board of directors, the first board of directors, which was 24 representatives of these wool merchants who acted like a court. And you got a symbol like that that you would put on your, uh, on your sign out front of where you were selling that signified you were being policed by this separate entity. Not law. Something else. And if you cheated, they would throw you out. And you wouldn't have this sign, this certificate of quality, and you wouldn't be able to get a good price for your uh, goods. The exact same story could be told about this. This is a drawing of a buttonwood tree in Manhattan in the 1790s. And there's a little table here. And these guys are dealers in government securities, bonds issued by the government to pay for the revolution. They were being traded in lower Manhattan since the revolution, since the 1780s. And New York State, in its infinite wisdom, passed a law, the Stock Jobbing Act of 1792, which made these transactions illegal. There was a hint of, we don't like rich people. There was a hint of anti-Semitism. There was a hint of, we don't understand what middlemen do. People who don't actually make anything, they're just buying and selling stuff. And so the New York legislature said, if you enter into one of these brokerage contracts, I go to you and say, please sell my government debt. You go to someone else and say, would you like to buy his government debt? That three-way contract would be unenforceable in New York courts. Law steps out of the way and says, we're not going to have anything to do. And if that's the case, somebody who is buying or selling U.S. government bonds can't trust that they're going to get a good deal. How will I know you won't be cheated? Because if I am cheated, I can't go into New York court and sue you. And it could have been the case that without law, the stockbrokers just folded up shop and went away. But they were too creative. They created something called the New York Stock Exchange under this buttonwood tree, the story goes, in 1795. The New York Stock Exchange was a club, just like the Merchants of the Staple. You become a member of our club, we will police you, the New York Stock Exchange and Board was the original title, and the Board was just like the Merchants of the Staple. We will create our own law to regulate you, and that will enable buyers from you to trust you, because if you cheat, the consequence is a harm to all of us. All stock reputations will suffer. We have strong incentives to police you from cheating, and therefore, buyers and sellers can trust us. Fast forwarding, this works, this system of a mix of law and self-regulation, like in the stock exchanges, works pretty well until there's a massive technological changes that happened in the early 1900s. The... Railroads connect us transnationally. Radio is developed. Refrigeration is developed. All of a sudden, the world is getting a lot more complicated. The Suez Canal is put in place. The first blossom of real globalization since the Hanseatic League and on orders of magnitude higher happens in the early part of the 1900s. And what what happens in response is a new theory of government... Roosevelt comes along and says, you're not going to be able to trust the food you eat because in the past, the food you ate came from the people you knew from your little town. Now we're shipping food in refrigerated rail cars all over the country. How can you trust that you'll be able to eat this? Well, we've got an administrative agency for that, the Food and Drug Administration. How will you be able to trust that this very complicated factory that you're working in with big heavy machinery and fires and all this stuff, how can you trust that it will be safe? Because after all, it's no longer owned by Frank the neighbor who lives up the hill, who has a local reputation. It's owned by industrialists all over the world. How can you trust that? Well, we get the Occupational Safety, Health Administration, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Expert agencies designed to increase trust. And lo and behold, a huge spike in cooperation across the country and growth in wealth. Then, after the war, the interstate highways come, and now you could be someone in Chicago who says, hey, let's drive to Los Angeles. That would never have occurred to anybody before 1950. And when you were driving to Los Angeles on Route 66, you might have gotten hungry, and you might have pulled into a little roadside diner, and you would have been the first person from out of town who'd ever eaten in that roadside diner. And the roadside diner knew that you were never coming back. How could you trust that you would not be poisoned or that the food would be good, that you would get value for your money? Well, you could have imagined the government doing what it did in the New Deal and having an army of inspectors who would go around the country raiding every restaurant to make sure they were safe, giving a good housekeeping seal of approval for the quality This is a, you know, they've got a government rating system, red light, yellow light, green light, or one through ten, or whatever it is that would tell you what the quality is. So you could imagine the government would have done that. But instead, we got these things called corporate brands. McDonald's said, I've got a better solution to that. We will make investments in standardization and brand. The brand, the billions of dollars McDonald's spends on branding is like a deposit. It's like a bond That So you can trust you will not be poisoned, because if they poison you, that, all that spending on brand is just flushed down the toilet. So you can trust that you're gonna have the same experience, it's not a linear, but you're gonna have the same experience and you're not gonna get poisoned. They're doing trust-creating work through brands that the government would have otherwise had to do for us to enable the same amount of trust. Okay, and then, of course, the, theme of the talk in the book is about what's going to change. These things come along with technology, internet platforms. They are just a new trust delivery mechanism. I bought for Christmas a hockey jersey from my son from someone in China. I've never met this person. I don't know who they are. There's no law involved at all. If they cheated me, Uh, They send me a Sidney Crosby jersey and I send them, you know, $50. What would I do in the absence of eBay creating that opportunity? I'm not going to fly to China. I'm not going to... There's no international agreement that governs these kinds of transactions. eBay allows me to trust through their technology, and they process 10,000 transactions a second. Through their technology, I can trust people all over the world. Same is true for... Amazon, Airbnb, the idea that you would sleep in a stranger's house, this is crazy. I wish my grandparents were alive just so I could tell them, hey, Graham, people sleep in strangers' houses, would have been completely madness to them. And yet, something that we take uh, for granted. We call this in the book uh, the human, the, the digital tribe. And what's great about internet platforms is they're not really. Uh, allowing us, we don't do this transaction because we trust eBay or we trust Airbnb. Those companies give us the platform, the environment to trust fellow human beings. I trust my Uber driver. I trust my Airbnb host because Airbnb and Uber give me information about them that enables me to trust them. It's human-to-human trust. And what's great about human-to-human trust is it's infinitely scalable. That's okay. Don't worry. Don't, don't be stressed. What is it, how does it work? Well, this invention, the five-star rating system, I'm not going to say it's, fu- it's up there with fire as one of mankind's great inventions, but <laughs> it is amazing how it has enabled trust. Now, I don't want to be a Pollyanna, it's not perfect, and it's got problems, and maybe we can talk about that later, but the ability to look and see, like this book, I picked at random, I mean, this is fi- it's five stars, I mean, you can order it now. Okay, stepping back for a second, I've talked about three different trust creation mechanisms. First is personal. Personal trust. I trust you. You trust me. We're in a family. We're friends. This is great because it's, there's no one, there's no middleman. There's no one who could take advantage of their position in the trust milieu to harm me. But the problem is it's not really scalable. You can only have 100 friends. Government comes along the rule of law, the regulatory state, we talked about these. It's got some problems. It's centralized. It's expensive. It's very prone to different kinds of information. It's bound by the Constitution. It's got to be one size fits all. And it's limited because it's premised on violence. Everything the government does is coerced, premised on violence. And that is a very costly mechanism for trust creation. And as we saw with the Merchants of the Staple or the Hanseatic League, when the government can't project violence over to Belgium, up to Norway, it doesn't really work. Business, we saw two versions of this, the guild and the brand. This is somewhat better. It's not quite as powerful because they can't threaten you with death. It's based on shared incentives and it's limited by competition. But, if the gains from cheating are big enough, the company will take advantage of you just like the government would. The digital tribe, the platform that we described, has this virtue of getting rid of the intermediaries. And the intermediary costs can be very, very high. I just picked these two examples. The lower right is Bernie Madoff. That number 64.8 is how much money he stole. The guy on the left, anybody know who that is? Or what 200 is? That guy's name is John Burge. He was a police lieutenant in the city of Chicago. He used torture to to get 200 people to confess to crimes that they didn't commit. Four of whom went to death row. When the government investigated this guy finally, in the 1990s, the statute of limitations had run for his torture and misbehavior. So the government got him on some other charges like obstruction of justice, and he went to jail for less than four years. We Chicagoans trust when we go to bed at night that we're going to wake up and our crap is still going to be in our house because cops are out there on the beat. And that allows me to sleep soundly. I don't have to post my children in shifts as guards. I get a good night's sleep. That... It allows me to be creative and I write masterpieces like this. <laughs> if I couldn't trust that, I wouldn't be able to sleep. I wouldn't be productive. But the cost of that is guys like this. And I could have picked any number of police brutality, horrible things. I trust, as an example, driving out on Lakeshore Drive. I trust that people aren't going to just slam into me and are going to be dr- behaving somewhat reasonably. And that's a pretty good assumption to make. And how do I have that trust? Because the police are out there pulling people over who are misbehaving. So, yes, great. On the other hand, if I'm driving in Hyde Park and my skin's a different color and I'm wearing different clothes than this, they might pull me over and I don't know, kill me. And that's a real social cost of government trust enforcement. Trust enforcing. Okay. What is trust Chicago style? Well, the question we want to ask is, who's the most efficient provider of trust? (laughs) Who can create the atmosphere where two humans, two or more humans, can cooperate at the lowest possible transactions costs? That's the question. And government should be the provider only where it can show that it's better. And there are plenty of places in society in which that's the case, and there are plenty of cases where I think it is not the case. The most important thing in doing this analysis, though, is realize that governments are monopolies and regulators of other trust providers. And so when thinking about whether or not a particular trust innovation will be permitted or not, the government is not only thinking about the welfare of its citizens, but also about its own self-interest in having this monopoly. Okay, let me give an example in the ride-sharing market. As I mentioned, government's created the taxi market. And you wouldn't have taxis without the government, this ride sharing. There's all sorts of problems, and they're on here. Riders don't know driver's cost. Drivers don't know rider's willingness to pay. You You can't really comparison shop with cabs. And so the regulation must carry, you must pick up everybody. You charge average cost, not marginal cost. And the bond against cheating in the form of a medallion That was the system of regulation, and you see here very sophisticated economists from the Federal Reserve saying, this is amazing in 1987. Obviously, government has, this regulatory system has very well-known costs. In his economics textbook in 1965, Milton Friedman, and I'm contractually obligated to say the name Milton Friedman at every talk at the University of Chicago, (laughs) cited this as an example of government policy with huge deadweight costs. There was a limited supply, not a lot of innovation, regulators serving their own interests, and of course, if you were like me, and you lived in Hyde Park when they were before Uber, you could not get a cab. Not surprisingly, cabs never came to Hyde Park. They never went to the west side of Chicago. It was too dangerous. There were people there who didn't look like them. They would never go there. Now, what about the poor people who lived on the west side of Chicago? How did they get around? How did they get a ride when they didn't have a car? Well, there was illegal Jitney services. And they're documented in Kitch's work in the Journal on Economics and were known among the community. So if you were a west side Chicago person, you needed a ride, you knew you could call up Felix, and Felix would show up and give you a ride. But when I showed up here as a law student, I didn't know about Felix. I couldn't get rides. So yes, there were these possibilities, but they were not available to everybody. And moreover, because they weren't regulated, dangerous. Felix might drive you there and hold you up or overcharge you. So there were people providing the service, but they were much uh, worse options. Then Ronald Reagan gets elected. And the spirit of deregulation hits America in the 1980s. And th- about 30 US cities deregulated their cab business. They'd read Milton Friedman. They'd read the Ed Kitch article. They knew about monopolies. 30 cities deregulate in the 1980s. It was a total failure. Because an orderly market would not arise from a state of nature for the reasons given in this Federal Reserve study I cited. So by the early 1990s, every single one of these cities had re-regulated. You couldn't have a taxi market without regulation. That was the punchline. So when I was a law student, this is what I believed. And then along comes Uber. And Uber says, and I think people have a misconception here in thinking Uber is a competitor with taxi cabs. And you hear taxi drivers say, it's unfair that they compete against us on terms that are not the same. To which I say, Uber does not compete with taxis. Uber doesn't own any cars. They don't employ any drivers. They're not taxis. Uber, their competitor is government. Their competitor is the Taxi Commission. They said to the world, we have a better solution to create trust among strangers who want to ride with each other. That's the business the Taxi Commission is in, creating the environment in which people can trust each other. And Uber says, we can do that better than you can, Taxi Commission, better than you can, government. Here's our system. The platform, we all know what this uh, looks like, right? I see the ratings of the drivers. My ride is being tracked. I can review them. They review me. If they long haul me, I get an instant rebate. There was a great uh, Medium article about this, about Las Vegas. Apparently, there's two ways from the McCarran Airport to the Strip, one of which goes through a tunnel. And if you find yourself in this tunnel, you're being cheated because it's a lot further. Recognizing this, the Taxi Commission in Nevada followed various strategies. The first one is they put up a giant sign at the airport with every possible destination and every possible fee. It's a chart as big as the back wall of this classroom in 10-point font. No one ever read it. Okay. Plan two, they set up a dispute resolution system which required you to submit a notarized affidavit if you were long-hauled. Yeah, I always carry my lawyer in a briefcase with me when I go on my trips. And then the third option, after they realized that failed, what did they? Do? They set up roadblocks at the tunnel and checked every cab to make sure that they were going somewhere that required them to go through the tunnel. Yes, please make add to my misery. Not only am I being long hauled, I'm now waiting in a gigantic traffic jam. Uber's solution is very simple. If your taxi driver, they see your point and your destination, and if you go through that tunnel, they instantly rebate you the money. Another example, and then I'll, I'll wrap up soon and we'll take questions, is uh, ticket scalping. When I was a kid, we would go to New York City to go to see sporting events at Madison Square Garden, and we would either be buyers or sellers of tickets almost all the time. We didn't have tickets to the game and wanted to get in, or we had extras. And there was this very complicated dance like out of a Jane Austen novel where you would walk down the street and you would see someone and you'd kind of catch their eye and then that person would be like, go like this and then you'd end up in the, in the vestibule of a deli somewhere and you'd be going like this because it was illegal to resell tickets. Oh my God, is there anything more offensive to somebody who went to the University of Chicago than prohibiting a secondary market where people, both parties are better off? And yet... It was illegal. We saw people handcuffed and taken away by the police in New York for engaging in a voluntary transaction. (laughs) Be still, my beating Chicago heart. (laughs) Why? Well, because you couldn't trust them. The government thought, you can't trust the ticket scalper, and we're protecting you. The venue, you're going to a New York Rangers game, they can't. They don't want to have you be mad at them because if you buy scalp tickets for the New York Rangers and they turn out to be fraudulent tickets, you might show up and they say, these aren't real tickets, and then you're mad about to to the New York Rangers. You might get counterfeit tickets and then reportedly torture the ticket scalper. No one could trust that the tickets being bought or sold were authentic tickets, and that caused all kinds of social problems. Okay, Solved. StubHub comes along, technology that allows tickets to be transferred to my phone, and I know they're authentic. They can't be duplicated. And all of a sudden, the armies of government agents walking the streets looking for ticket scalpers just go away. Because StubHub can do better. They can create a trust system better than the government can. And for those of you who think that I'm up here espousing that the government should just get out of business, It's not right. One of the things that I learned in reading this book is having a new appreciation for things like the government in taxi regulation, we tried deregulation, it failed. And it may be the case that a lot of the alphabet agencies were necessary at the time in those conditions to create a national market in some instances. But a lot of them now, I think, are more like ticket scalping and like taxis. We shouldn't accept them just because we should put them to proof with technology, and other ways of allowing uh, human cooperation. I'll just close with this example, and then I'm happy to take your questions. It was the case that in the old days, uh, this was money. Um, This is $50 issued by the Dubuque Bank in Wisconsin. And there was a time in the United States when banks issued their own currency. This is good because before I would put my money into a bank, if I know that the Dubuque banks, my money in the Dubuque bank, depends on the Dubuque bank not going out of business, I'm going to be very careful about who I give my money to. That means the Dubuque bank won't take big risks because they know their customers are watching. And I'm going to monitor my bank because they have my money. The problem is, If I leave Dubuque and I go to Chicago or New Orleans, who's going to take money from the Dubuque bank? No one's ever heard of the Dubuque bank. So this limits my ability to cooperate. Government comes along in the early part of the 19th century and says, aha, we've got the solution. National money, backed by the federal government, legal tender available everywhere. Now I can go from Dubuque down to New Orleans and my money's good and of course they add in there for the benefit of those who didn't trust them, we'll put God on there, because now you can really trust us. (laughs) And the reason God is on there is because nothing stands behind that money. After Nixon takes us off the gold standard and FDR did in the 30s, it's just a promise. There's nothing behind it. It is faith. And the problem now is, with national money, banks have no incentive to take care the Dubuque Bank. So the Dubuque Bank will take all kinds of risks knowing the federal government, in the form of the Federal Deposit Insurance Company, will bail out investors. And if the government's gonna bail you out, you have no incentive to monitor, and then you get things like the credit crisis. And you get the government making mistakes on how much money there should be in the economy, like they did in the 30s, like they did in the early 2000s in the financial crisis. So this this thing creates a national market. Cooperation, yay! Well, oh, leads to all kinds of problems in banking and all sorts of regulation to solve those problems, which is a tax we're all paying. Okay, and then Bitcoin comes along. And Bitcoin, which is Milton Friedman's dream, here he says, I've been in favor of abolishing the Federal Reserve and substituting a machine program that would keep the quantity of money growing at a steady rate. Well, we have it. Maybe. Bitcoin's early, it's a new technology, it is designed to fulfill Friedman's dream of getting the government out of the money business. Key thing it's selling, trust. Will you trust us, the Bitcoin world, to only produce money, as Friedman says, increasing at a steady rate? Because what could Bitcoin do? It could say, oh, here's coins that you can use for transactions, People buy them thinking they're worth $100 equivalent each, and then all of a sudden Bitcoin prints its own coins and they take them for themselves and massively delight you, like Venezuela or something. That's a real problem with any money system. And have they created that machine? I don't know. We could talk a lot about that. But that's the intention. You can trust us to do the job the Federal Reserve was doing. Bitcoin is a direct assault at the Federal Reserve Just like Uber is a direct result, uh, assault on taxi commissions. Okay. With that, I will take your questions. Please. Someone like Robert Putnam will say that multiculturalism can diminish trust both within and among groups. Do you see or have any ideas of how these different tech generating trust machines? can interact with that or reduce that? Well, I think uh, I'm optimistic about them on that dimension because um, I view the old trust mechanisms like language and religion and race, all these things that are proxies for people who are similar to me and therefore I can trust them. People that are closest to me, familially. That's where we were for millions of years. And the story that I tell here and in the book is like the long march away from that. Towards this kind of multicultural dream where all the humans are part of one big digital tribe. Um, At least the technology allows us to be connected to people in ways that we never would have before in trusting people. I mean, the idea that you would get into a stranger's car in front of the law school some Ultima pulls up and you just whoosh, whist off. I, I don't know if you realize how phenomenally crazy that is. Um, and again, I don't want to be a Pollyanna and say like, oh, technology is just going to make all these problems go away. They're so deeply encoded in us. And people uh, can gain so much by preying upon them and taking advantage of them um, that I, you know, I'm cautiously optimistic. But I think that's the whole, that's the whole enterprise here. Uh, when I was trusting this person in China, I had no idea who that person is. Um, and it, it just vastly expands the number of people I'm willing to trust, because it just gets me off of the what government, what do they look like, what language do they speak, what are their... We just know we can exchange with each other. So it seems like it kind of works in that society develops a trust system, starts to deteriorate, government steps in, develops a better one, one starts to deteriorate, and now business and technology is sort of stepping into a third. Is it so new that you don't have any sense of how this may end up deteriorating and what a possible replacement would be? Or are there some indications from you know, the previous iterations that you know, here's how these newer systems could even then deteriorate? And could we prevent that? Is that something we're just sort of waiting for and then trying to institute something better? Or? Yeah, it's a good question. So the question is, um, everything I've said here, uh, and I did. there's a slide where I, I kind of skipped over. Uh, I'll just go back to it. Um, this one which is a very rough trace of the relative power of these things over time, or, or, or efficiency. So we start with personal trust, and you know government and business trust are zero in the tribe. And this works for a while. And then there's this law comes along, and the total amount of human trust goes radically higher. Within a few hundred years, you see a million people co- cooperating. Uh, And that works and works and works and works for nation states, and all of a sudden it doesn't work for what was needed, the guilds and so forth, and then that takes off. And like you said, all of these kind of follow a life cycle. Our own view, and, and I think we've reached that point with the regulatory state. I think government is at its capacity for increasing trust in society through regulation. Um... More so in some areas than less, er and less in other areas. But I think we're at the peak government right now. The promise I think of the digital tribe is it's infinitely scalable because it's just you know it's connecting humans to each other. You don't need a gigantic bureaucracy. The bigger the federal government gets, the less effective it can be because there's just so many parts of it. And imagine, I mean, we're voting for president to basically oversee five trillion dollars. When we voted for President Clinton, the federal budget was less than $2 trillion. And so the idea that voters could pick a person to manage $5 trillion is kind of hard to imagine. And I might vote, there may be things I really passionately care about, but they're bundled together in this $5 trillion package. I can't kind of take them apart. And so I think that means there's just inherent social limits in how big bureaucracies can get. So I think that's, I'm predicting we're peak government now. And what I like about the Digital Tribe is there's no, it's infinitely scalable because it's just people to people and it's getting us back to the thing we feel most comfortable with as humans. The idea of delegating to somebody else to provide trust for us, I think, is um, uh, just so inherently fraught um, that we, we need a better way. Now, what, is there some limit on the Digital Tribe? I don't know. I'm not a, I can't predict the future, um, but I'm optimistic. Yeah. So, uh, does the digital tribe somehow still need some amount of government trust to build on? In the sense, uh, it seems that some of the digital tribes are most successful in countries where the government legal systems work. Uh, Uber works better because at the end, if the Uber driver does something, chances of being prosecuted are higher in the states than in a third world country. Yeah. And we see this in the sense that countries with higher digital penetration are unable sometimes to create digital tribes better than the United States. Great. So I would say, I did two comments, so I totally agree with you. My guess is there's some minimum rule of law that's required as a precondition for this. So if, in the ideal world, we would pull back some of the regulatory state, only where we prove there was a better technology that could do the same thing, We would peel it back, but it would only be to some minimum level. So even crazy libertarians like me are in favor of very strong policing against force and fraud. So that's the first thing. It also may be the case that uh, the legal system enables, through all sorts of means, like my securities class right before this, the creation of these internet platforms. They didn't come out of the state of nature. They were products of a very structured legal system and regulatory environment. So I agree with you. So that's the first thing. Um, The second thing is slight variation, which is, it is really hard to hack the regulatory state. Uber has been more affected at at it than anybody. But even they have gotten real pushback from government. So Uber's a real threat, Bitcoin even more so. And so the government, because it's a regulator of this market, is going to push back heavily for its own reasons, and it's going to couch them in uh, protection reasons, and this has a long history. When Philip the Bold, uh, who was a French prince, came into the Low Countries in the 14th century, he he tried to get rid of the guilds. And what did he use as his argumentation? oh, these guilds, they're cheating you. And he used the same language that you would hear uh, politicians say against Uber. This is replete throughout the book and throughout history. Okay, the one thing I will say then is because it's very hard to unring the bell, once you have government, it's really hard to get people to vote against it, especially because a lot of the people that are voting against uh, government officials have other unattractive features when they're anti-government. Uh, countries that are starting from lower levels can actually institute some technology in ways that if they could get behind it, that we can't. So here's an example. Blockchain, which is just a a ledger technology that's unhackable, they say, you could record property records on blockchain. Who owns my property? That could be in a computer algorithm that would basically be unhackable. Well, that's way more efficient than the property records office of Cook County because if you go down there, there's hundreds of government workers, there's old paper forms. It's completely a waste of money. But try getting rid of them. We still have, in some places, people sitting taking tolls for roads. What? This is crazy. (laughs) So it's very hard. Now, uh, Guatemala is trying to use the blockchain for property records because once you know who owns property, you can borrow against it. It allows huge wealth creation. We need to get, blow up the property records office. I mean, not literally. <laughs> um, and then, if you're to say, like, I want to make it clear, this isn't like a libertarian saying this. Take the money and give it to poor kids to go to school or buy health insurance. I, I don't care. Keep the size of the government the same if you want to, just to buy the argument. But just take it and do things where it will be more efficiently spent. Maybe one or two more? Yeah. Okay, so uh, you uh, begin with your presentation with the chart showing that trust towards the government is being reduced uh, throughout the year. Yeah. And you came up with the conclusion that uh, the creation of online platforms for actually who offer trust, is uh, a to this phenomenon. Uh, how do you explain the fact that actually the users of these platforms are depending on government to increase their trust for these platforms? For example, we expect privacy rules to protect them. We expect was regulation against Amazon or Google. Um, do you think that we actually trust the platforms, or we trust the fact that the government trusts the platforms and allows them to operate? Uh, I think that uh, I think this is related to his question. Uh, in the background, there will always be government regulation. The 10,000 transactions transactions a second on eBay, I think, have nothing to do with government. Now eBay was created in an environment in which there's rule of law and you can raise money in certain ways and there's protection for investors or whatever, and I'm in favor of all those things. My transaction on eBay where I'm buying a Hummel figurine or a hockey jersey from someone in China has nothing to do with government. When, uh, I, when my analog in 1950 drove from Chicago to Los Angeles and ate at McDonald's, sure, there was probably some meat inspector somewhere. It had everything to do with that and nothing to do with government. I'll give you another example. Uh, Yelp. Yelp rates restaurants, and now Yelp is sending in people to do like, restaurant inspections, like walk into the kitchen. No one who eats in a restaurant does so on the faith that there are government inspectors going in and testing the food in the restaurant. That's laughable. And Yelp could do a much better job in doing restaurant inspections, than the government inspectors who don't, or who are easily bribed, or, and you know, there's, story, there's all sorts of stories about this. So I think when we trust Amazon, or Uber, or eBay, there is some minimum level of government, but all the trust they've provided is on top of that. Additional trust that wouldn't have been there. The number of rides that Uber's done uh, with strangers in their cars is orders of magnitude more than the number of taxi rides. And the reason I trust sending my kids in an Uber isn't because, or just because, I know that if the person does something wrong, I'll be able to call the police. Last question? Yeah. I'm just wondering, does competition between these trust (coughs) neighbors matter? I'm thinking the government's a monopoly, right? There's only one FDA, but we trust the drugs because there's this one regulator doing it. On the other hand, you know, maybe I trust McDonald's in some way, that it's a good provider of food, because I know they're going to lose the Burger King if they do something to betray my trust. Or maybe today, you know, I trust Uber because I know there's Lyft, and I think they're doing a better job of connecting me to other people. Great, and that's related to his point about antitrust. The antitrust is is a problem. As you said, the first response to any antitrust concerns about Internet platforms is... If the government is an alternative, the government is a monopoly on violence. So let's start there. We're, even if we're 99% chance of a monopoly, we're better. That being said, I agree with you, and we talk about this in the book, switching costs, the lower switching costs are, the more people will trust platforms or business intermediaries. And if, Lyft can, if I can switch to Lyft or Uber, that makes it much better. And I've been told although I know nothing about this, that people are working on redesigning the internet because the internet was based on uh, government protocols and those were shareable because they were universities in government. So the, the base layer of the government of the internet is uncrypted and the applications that sit on top of it are encrypted and that's where our data lives. If Uber has my data, the cost of me switching to Lyft is not trivial. Yes, I can just download the phone, but I've taken 10,000 rides in Uber. Lyft doesn't know me very well, so I may have a worse experience. If I can bring my data with me, that reduces switching costs, and then the power is really unlocked, and that, to both of these questions, it might take government. might take government antitrust, may might take other government actions, but the government actions with an eye on increasing competition in the market for trust As opposed to squelching it, which is what the government typically does. Okay, thank you for coming. This audio file is a production of the University of Chicago Law School. Visit us on the web at www.law.uchicago.edu.